Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karam. Today, we're going to be talking about practical for energy system development. Normally, it's just me going on and on about how I would develop an athlete's energy system. But today, we're going to go through a little bit differently than we normally do and bring on a strength conditioning coach named Angelo Gingerelli. Angelo is a strength conditioning coach and professor at Seton Hall University, which he's been there since 2005. He'll go through his resume a little bit more, but he's been in a lot of different places. And one of the things he talked about is how he got personally the energy system development bug and got into some distance running or endurance events. And he saw a great opportunity to develop a book called Finish Strong, Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes, based off of what he saw the rest of the running community not really applying and helping their running. And one of the things that we talked about, and this is something we've talked about actually quite extensively through cardiovascular module and our nutrition, as well as increasing our variability and overall health markers, is developing oxidative or capacity throughout the entirety of your life. And is a foundational piece to develop anaerobic pathways, but also to really diving into longevity and long-term health. Because the thing that we talked about was the development of aerobic pathways or oxidative pathways is a very long, long process, relatively speaking to our anaerobic development. It's going to peak relatively early, probably in our early to mid-20s, versus endurance. There's probably no, there's not really that much of an upper limit as to why we can develop higher VO2 max or overall endurance capacity, but there is a limiting factor. It's a structural ability to handle that stress to develop that endurance and you see why stationary equipment like bikes or or ellipticals have taken popularity is because it takes a beating to do that much volume and where resistance training really comes in is helps strengthen joints ligaments helps strengthen those movement patterns improve our force generating capability develop our our quote-unquote kick and we talked a lot about a bunch of different stuff of that simple question is it better to develop anaerobic pathways to have a better transition to aerobic pathways later or vice versa, develop more capacity, develop more anaerobic or higher ceiling anaerobically. But we also talked about orthopedically, also talked about immune system, talked about central governor, talked about the, the benefit of incorporating more balance within your strength training and endurance program, whether you're a power-based athlete only doing lifting, incorporating some endurance-based stuff and vice versa. If you're just an endurance-based athlete, incorporating some anaerobic work. Really excited about this book. I, was, I think Angelo really crushed his podcast. He's got a, a wealth of knowledge in a subject as well. It's just incredibly well-rounded. thought he did an amazing job, and I know you guys are going to enjoy this. Also, make sure you check out, we do have Strength Deficit available for pre-order. It is $10 cheaper than you would get on Amazon. So capitalize on that now. If you do order it, you get a copy of the programs that will go through the end of July. So make sure you get on that now, sooner than later, as well as getting on the platform Realize Me, which can get you access to utilizing all your data in one single place to see everything that you're tracking from wearables to heart rate to blood pressure to anything you're doing in terms of force play, anything you're doing from training, blood work panels, all in one single location. It's your command center for all of your data. I use it personally. I track all of my supplements. I track all of my war or ring, all of my vault stuff, everything in one location. It is where I go to see the effects 
of any intervention I utilize, I am incorporating. It is a tremendous tool. They have a wait list ready for you. If you go to realize.me, you can sign up for the wait list, get access to it. Not only do you have access to an incredible platform to track all of your stuff, which is a huge problem for most of strength coaches, you'll get special discounts on supplements and blood panels and other testing things that you may want to incorporate into your training so you can level up. Realize.me, your command center for all your health and data information. All right, guys, we have Angelo on today. We're going to talk a little bit about resistance training for endurance athletes. He's got a new book out, Strength Coach at Seton Hall slash uh, professor there. So we got a lot to unpack. Let's do this. Let's open up. Angelo, why don't you introduce yourself and go through a little bit of your background? Hey, man, Tim, thanks for having the PH podcast. I super appreciate it. Uh, really excited for what you're doing on the podcast. Uh, I've been on a lot of interview podcasts this year, and they've all been great. Uh, you're doing the most, I think, education-wise, as far as doing the, the modules and strictly education episodes mixed with the interview episodes. So, you know, Tim, I had to that. Glad to be some small part of what you're putting together out there. But um, my name is Angelo Gingerelli. I've been training this coach at Seton Hall since 2005. Uh, I've been adjunct professor there since around 2010 or 2011, something like that. And then uh, before that, I was at uh, NC State, Virginia Tech, the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I've been seeing all Pirates since 2005, which, as your listeners know, in strength and conditioning, that's an attorney to have one job. But I really fell into a good position. I grew up a Seton Hall fan. I went to the games with my dad when I was younger, and now I take my, my daughter to the games now that I'm a dad myself. It's been a really cool thing, man. So I always tell young strength coaches, travel around, get that experience when you can before you have a lot of financial responsibility of family, children, whatever it is. And then I think the key is when you get to your late 20s, early 30s, kind of settle into a position for long term if you can or profession does not make that easy or kind of start your own business like you guys did on the west coast and get that ball rolling there but i think uh, the, the goal should be to move around experience some different things early on and then hopefully if you're lucky enough settle down as you get older in one part of the country and establish your name and your brand and and what you bring to the table in one spot as you go through your 30s and 40s uh, and luckily for me it's been a great place where i grew up my family's around here and it's been a been a cool experience the other thing that's kind of let me do is by being in one place for a while I become an adjunct professor I, I guess lecture in a lot of grad classes I do some stuff you know, labs on campus I've got to become like a fixture in the community which is really cool which eventually led to me writing the book Finish Strong with RJ Borgers who is a uh, PhD a full-time professor I thought of training department that I got to meet because we were running together we were training together uh, probably 10 11 summers ago and we just really hit it off became good friends I came to it with the strength and conditioning background he came to it with the athletic training background and that led to the book uh we put out the very end of 2021 wow okay so that's that's a cool story in itself uh i think there's actually a couple things to pull from that uh one being you know that idea of getting that opportunity to you know lay some roots in our profession is i think really underrated uh being close to family being close to or being part of a university that you grew up as a fan probably got you into this in the first place to you know give back, so to speak, but also to like, you know, doing something that you feel a really sense of connection and connection to. And, um, personally, uh, you're personally more invested, but I think the part that I think is really interesting, um, and it's actually gotten to this, like a little bit of a debate on this in Twitter with, uh, with another strength coach, but I was saying put Olympic sports in charge of all football department or all strength conditioning over football. And I always came back with, you know, the, the thing about being a football strength coach and the lack of permanence or the lack of job security keeps the sword sharp. 
um, which the, the idea of you actually creating connections to community, getting adjunct professor, add to your list of things that you're doing, as well as writing a book, like, you know, that part I think is the most impressive. So if you find a place that you can be where for a long time, like actually stay, keeping things you're interested in and keeping you engaged and doing challenging things like writing a book is not an easy thing to do. So that's really cool, man. I, mean, I appreciate it. You know what I think we, I think in the strength and conditioning world, and I was a big part of this for a long time, we have a hard time taking the principles that we use in the weight room or on the treadmill or when we're training people into real life. Right. Like you always said, you got to keep the sword sharp. So my thing is if we're going to talk about training the body. There's a million different ways we can do that and be effective, right? We can do crossfit. We can do high intensity interval training. We can do power lifting. We can do Olympic lifting. We could run. We could do agility drill. It's all great. As long as I hurt yourself, my opinion, there's a place for everything, right? But then when you said, I think in our profession, I, I, I was a part of this out of college. I thought there was one path to success which is get a job at a big time college as an, start off as an intern, then be like the third assistant, second assistant, work your way up to get a chance to be a head strength and conditioning coach. Right. And I think that is a way to success in our profession, but there's a hundred other ways to success. Just like there's a hundred other ways to work out than the way you might think is the best way to work out. And I think one thing that kind of, kind of locking down on one spot for a while has allowed me to do is open some of those other doors. Right. Um, have I, it, I'm not saying people aren't beating down my door with job offers right now to keep it real, but I'm not even really looking for other things. And I found so many ways to quote unquote, as you said, keep my sword sharp here. I like doing this for now, right? If we can do this podcast a year from now, I might, be, I might be on the job market begging you for a position with a legion out in California, right? That's a thing that we go through in our profession. Cause like you said, it's so transient. And you know, one day you're a head strength coach with a bunch of interns onto you. Two years later, you're applying to a job with one of those interns because they kind of leapfrog you on the totem pole, right? Um, and that's one of the worst things about our profession. The other thing, man, I know I'll be my chest about this, and every strength coach says it, but it's true. If we're not going to make these jobs better paying and give benefits to everybody on the staff, how long can any strength coach stay at a job? It doesn't make any sense, right? To have, tell a guy that's, that's 25 years old, trying to start a family, trying to buy a house, to keep working for $18,000 a year with no benefits, be the first guy in the building, last guy out of the building, and wonder why he quits the first chance he gets, right? So I think as long as we're not going to pay people well and compensate them for their time, their expertise, and their, their knowledge, I don't know how long people are going to stay in jobs. Is that is that fair to say? So as a business owner, I have a completely different perspective on this now. Okay. Um, when I'm playing with house money or I'm trying to get a piece of the pie of a really big pie, like a division one university, I think it's a different story, but I think the market is so saturated with a bunch of people that kind of want to do it. And me now in my situation, I have to weed through that, right? Like, you know, I'm getting people either who don't want to leave the direct area, don't want to work in a team setting, um, or just transitioning from another profession. And, the market value for them is not really good. You know, to be honest, like their value they bring is nothing relatively speaking to the amount we have to invest from time, money, energy, and resources. Um, even someone like with your experience and pedigree, if they applied to me, like it's still a big risk that I have to take on. It's a liability, right? Like you might be doing this as a transitional job, right? And I have to invest time, energy, and resources into training you and getting you up to speed. And that's eating into the bigger picture. And the question that comes up is if I hire you, with your years of experience and pedigree, will I get that return on investment? And as a business owner, as someone that's fighting to get profitable still, um, and growth is not synonymous with profitability, growth is a different rate than actual profitability, right? You get, you get growth to 
scale to figure out how to become more profitable as a, as a larger entity. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have enough disposable resources to be able to hire someone with a lot of experience. So I have to really work hard to train and motivate and, you know, take green and experienced people. Uh, but then again, too, if like, you know, the reason why some of these salaries are there what they are is because people take those jobs. You know, I, I totally. You know? I mean, if I was to if I was to walk out of this building tomorrow and they post my job, you know, tomorrow at eight a.m., there'll be a hundred resumes for by noon of people that will do the job for less than I did. Let me take this in a little more positive note. Though, would you mm-hmm. agree with this that young strength coaches should learn the the science of what we do? Right, hundred percent. We're talking a module on the show, but then find a way to monetize that and bring something to the table when they sit down with you for a job interview. You say, you know, I have my CSCS, I've done these studies, whatever it is, I've written these articles, but I also have this experience in marketing, and I have these clients on my call list already. And I can bring these people in your facility, or I I know people at this podcast, this conference, this magazine publisher, whatever it is, and I can kind of help monetize that that way. In a collegiate setting, it might be as you've been in a place long enough start getting involved in alumni events start reaching out to the kids who are closing the weight room and get them on that donor list right so i kind of agree with you that there, a lot of what we do it's really hard to put a dollar value on right but i think if i could give advice to young strength coaches i would say find a way to to add some dollar value to what you bring to the table and that might open some doors for you in a private and the, the educational setting is that is that fair to say yeah you know and i think sometimes too we we associate things that we're interested in as bringing more value to the university and a a passion project, so to speak. Like if, if I have a cook or if I own a restaurant and my lead chef does learns to do carpentry or plays an instrument, it doesn't make him more valuable. So sometimes when we pursue continue education with the infinite directions, we can go as strength conditioning coaches, right? We can go on the mental side, the psychological side, the, the physiology side, the sports medicine side, we can go in a million different directions any given day, right? It's just infinite what we can go. Doesn't necessarily mean that we're bringing more value from an administrator standpoint, right? And, you know, they could be evaluating on a specific thing, right? And I asked every AD whenever I ever do an exit interview, it was like, how do you evaluate us? And it kind of ranges like, you know, you guys just bring in the athletes seem to like you. So that seems to be good. Or oh, when you guys are in strength, when we have a good strength conditioning staff, we have less insurance premiums or, you know, the coaches, I don't get a lot of bitching and complaining from them. So that's how I evaluate you. It's basically like these very, very nondescript, nonlinear industries, the difference between high performance universities or team settings versus others. Like others have a really clear description of what they want from all their all their uh, employees and staff, you know, but uh, yeah, you know, as a whole, it's, it's, it's a very gray area, right? Yeah. Oh, but if I go really out hard. and get, uh, if I go out and get Dr. Walsh's functional medicine certification that from the university perspective, I don't necessarily need to do that, you know? So it's right. like, I don't have more value, but it was really hard to learn and do, you know? And I think that part is, is in a lot of ways, uh, the challenge of strength conditioning and tempering motivation and this excitement to learn and grow, but, funneling that into a very specific outlet that brings more value from the administration perspective. And it's interesting you brought that up because I actually, I've been working on this, this this summer. The book came out for me at the very end of November. And for seven months now, I've gone as hard as a human being can at promoting this book, right? So I recently had a meeting with our administration and the meeting was basically this. I've written this book that on the surface doesn't bring a value to our athletic department, right? Because the, the financially, it's, it's my book, right? It's me and the publisher. But what I've done for seven months now and plan on doing it for another five because I plan on running with this promo schedule to the end of 2022 is I've been on dozens of the biggest podcasts in the world. 
I've had guest columns and interviews on some of the biggest running websites in the world. I've done multiple, we're talking 15 plus book signings, talks in running stores, libraries, PT clinics, and everywhere I'm going, I'm talking to these people about how much I love being a part of CNO Athletics, which is a hundred percent the truth, right? So how many potential uh, recruits have I spoken to? How much have I grown the brand? And I kind of, when I look, I looked at the metrics I put together myself in, I think in 2022, in our department, the only two people that have had a bigger voice about our athletic department has been our head men's basketball coach or head women's basketball coach. We don't have football, right? So it's the two highest paid positions on campus. And then I'm the, I'm the third biggest quote unquote star speaking positive about the department of the media, that has to be worth something. You know what yeah. I mean? So I kind of took that approach of, I have this job that it's not really clear how I'm evaluated. And I understand I don't bring a ton of revenue to the department, but I'm doing this other thing. And in the world we live in today, where social media followers with a new credit score, right? And Q ratings matter. I don't know if there's anybody else pushing that as hard as I am this year. And yeah. I, no one no one argued with me on that, that I've kind of taken the, the, the ball and ran with it and I plan on doing it for the you know, foreseeable future. But I think that's one good message for coaches, man, is what we do in the weight room, and that's super important, but find a way to monetize that for either yourself or your employer, um, or you're not going to be viewed as valuable in a lot of cases. Yeah, and, and honestly, too, now working in a private sector and owning a business versus working in a public sector and being part of the a cog in the wheel, right? And you can look at it from, I mean, it's about as socialist as you can get working for a team setting college strength conditioning job, right? Like you're, 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 you're never, you're seen, but never heard from You're you're supposed to just do your job and be happy about whatever you get. And then you get this like classic line of, you know, how many people want your job? Um, you know, how many people will be envious of being in your shoes kind of thing. Um, but the other side of it is, you know, and I, I got this line from Mark Fitzgerald, who's, uh, He's, again, infinite background and worked hockey, NHL, but owns his own business and just really, really bright dude. But he's, we're talking about this aspect, right? And, you know, he's got staff that he has with the Ducks or used to have with the Ducks. And then he has his staff for his businesses. And the thing he really centered on of like, don't ask for more money, earn more money, you know, like just earn it. And then I'll give you more money <laughs> you know, like that. Yeah. What a novel thought, right? Like if you bring us more revenue, I will pay you more like that. And it's same thing for you right now. Like you're doing that, you're promoting the brand and bringing a lot more than just your day-to-day -day job, which should either make more money for your book, but also too like necessitate bringing more value. And if someone else desires that from you and your services, like let's say Rutgers goes, damn, we really like Angelo. We think he should come over here. We're going to pay him, you know, whatever he's making plus at Rutgers. If Seton Hall now comes back and says, like, we can't, we can't do it without him based off the value he's bringing for us, you know, that's their decision to make. But, you know, now you have some direct market value and now you can sit there and say, I'm worth X and I can do say that justifiably. Agreed. And I think one thing we drop the ball on as a profession, as strength and conditioning coaches are, we keep wanting to be the silent partner, the wheel, the cog in the machine, just like you said, right? We laugh at the guys and girls that are crushing Instagram with 100,000 plus followers. So we, we don't want to be that person a lot of times, right? We want to, we laugh at the kids who care on social media and, and trying to work on these NIL deals are allowed to do now. But in our, in our reality, in my opinion is if you're not doing that, Number one, you're leaving money on the table for yourself. And number two, you're going to be competing for your next job with somebody who already has a brand established, is already a media personality, is already quote unquote famous in our world, and you're an unknown quantity. You understand you're starting that race way behind them. 
right? So I understand. I think it's a lot of the, the general. I'm, I'm 44. I'm about to be 45 years old, so I'm kind of old to be having this conversation. But everybody my age and older in our profession hates anybody that's kind of jumping on the, the new wave of things. By new, I mean 20 years. We're 20 years in the social media now. What are you doing if you're not trying to play the game? You know what I mean? I don't see it. I don't, you, know, you know, you wouldn't let yourself fall 20 years behind on the training side of things, right? You wouldn't, it's 2022 when we interview, you wouldn't read a book that came out in 2003 and be like, oh, this is the hottest thing ever. I can't wait to anybody's my players. You read stuff that came out last year or maybe the year before. Why would you not take the same approach to your business, your resume, your brand, whatever it is? Yeah. You know, and you know, have you ever read the book Anti Fragile by the Central Lab? I have not. Okay. So the, the central theme is, you know, very, um, very singular structure thing. So if we only work on one quality, one biomotor ability, we're very fragile. Like if we are required to do something else, like a power lifter having to run a hundred meter sprint or, mm -hmm. you know, a endurance athlete having to do a powerlifting competition, they're going to snap. Right. But the same thing from, you know, where we bring in revenue. And if we think we look at COVID, right. Like I think everyone can kind of collectively go back and there's two types of approaches of like, what was me? I'm a victim or the other person out there is like, now the game has changed. And I, have to look at if I lose my primary source of income, how am I going to provide for my family? And that's why I created PH podcast was that was the only reason is I didn't know what the future of a standalone commercial fitness or gym business would be. Right. I didn't know what the reality was. And I'm happy and fortunate we were able to push through. And that was the number one priority is to provide, you know, compensation and pay to our staff and employees. But, you know, if that failed, you know, how could I provide for my family? And that was when I really started to go ahead. I can write, I can do something. And then from the other ends is like your social media account and how many followers you have and how you're engaging with them with the Q score, you know, that gives you some sort of, if Seton Hall said tomorrow, like we just can't support strength conditioning anymore. We're going to have to do cutbacks or get to get furlough days for you or whatever it is they do. You can go, I got a pretty good backing here. I, I don't need this per se. I have a, I have a backup plan. I can go somewhere else or I can do something else and be successful at it. And I think that, peace of mind, you have more value. It's like being attracted to the op whatever you want to be in terms of relationship, right? Like you're not as attractive until someone else wants you, you know? And I think that dynamic you present from, you know, Hey, look, I am fragile. If I only can do one thing or provide one thing, I better be the best that's ever done it. Or I better find ways to be able to bring more value from other places. Yeah, no, no question, man. I, I've, I've been doing a presentation uh, with a couple of NCA events recently, but I had to approach the publishing industry as a strength coach, right? And one slide I put in there that I really agree with is that if you're at, this probably goes to any job, but definitely goes to strength coaches, one hour of every day should be dedicated to creating revenue for yourself to build that parachute that if you get thrown out of this plane that you're working on right now, you're not starving to death on Monday or you don't get that check on Friday. So I, it could be like said, social media, it could be writing a book, it could be putting together um, conference presentations, whatever it is. But my attitude, we're going to work out an hour a day. We're going to do that in an hour a day. And then you still got 22 hours a day to do everything else you want and, and for your employer, for sleep, for your family, whatever it is. But I think we don't do those. And we love training. So that hour is easy for us. Right. But the next hour of kind of building your brand, whatever it is, working on your next project, I think it's super important. And you find an hour, you know, don't don't steal from your boss. Don't do it on the clock. Do it at night. Do it in the morning. Do it on your lunch break, whatever it is. But find a way to, to you know, build that, that brand. I hate using that cliche over and over again. But, you know, get ready for the next step in case someone decides this step's over for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good segue. So got a book. Why'd you write it? 
Okay, so kind of, I kind of mentioned earlier, I wrote the book with Dr. R.J. Borgers. He's a professor in our athletic training program. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. We met in 2011. We started running after work together. We just really hit it off, right? Now, we would lift a couple of days a week. We would run a couple of days a week. And we just kind of started having a conversation that a lot of the people in the running community around us, like he's in a triathlon club. I do a lot of road races down at the Jersey Shore. We're, as we were getting older, we approached our mid to late 30s. People were getting hurt. They were getting slower. They were getting burnt out. And pretty much the theme throughout all of these people we were talking to was they didn't lift weights, right? And I look at it from a strength coach perspective, and you being a strength coach will kind of understand this. Most of us don't come from endurance sports backgrounds, right? Where I was, I was a power lifter for a long time. I was an Olympic lifter for a long time. And then in my 30s, started running and just, just randomly got into the road race thing, caught the bug, ran a marathon, and been doing that for the last 10 plus years. And I just realized that, that to me, that's a very underserved segment of the athletic population from all levels of strength and conditioning, right? There's a million books, articles, websites, Instagram accounts of how to train football, basketball, and baseball. Right. There's enough of those things to train your lacrosse, your soccer, your swimming, whatever it is. Um, there's almost nothing out there for endurance athletes. Right. So I kind of we, we sat down, we, we pitched it to a bunch of different publishers. Um, we got some interest right away. I could talk about the process a little more if you want. It's up to you. But then we just kind of looked at what worked for us. What is the research support and how do we synthesize those two things into a training program? So the book's broken down into two main sections. The first section is about 100, 125 pages of physiologically why endurance athletes should strengthen train, right? So we're pulling on the NSCA guidelines, the ACSM guidelines, the kind of the stuff guys like us know and take for granted, but the general person does not know, right? And the second half, we talk about how to put it together, right? How if you're a, a high school cross-country runner versus an adult marathoner versus an open water swimmer versus a cyclist versus a triathlon, how do you put these templates and these workouts together to fit into your schedule? And we periodize the year for an adult endurance athlete the way me or you would for a college football team, say, right? So have an off-season, a preseason, a peak mileage, and a taper period, and just kind of, kind of take the principles we've developed in the college world and kind of put them in the adult fitness, adult endurance training community in the second half of the book. So, you know, with that being said, and you kind of went through a big range, is there a, a target demo? Is this specifically for runners or is this is this for guys who like to lift and want to include running into the schedule? Okay, cool. It's kind of the opposite of the second demographic you said, right? Our core reader is someone that is a, a recreational to slightly competitive endurance athlete. So we're talking runners, cyclists swimmers or triathlete right in the adult age range that is already committed that kind of training that kind of competing but wondering where to put resistance training in the in the puzzle right the joke i was making is we deal with track coaches i do i do with a lot of great track coaches in new jersey but they'll have their track workouts to the to the meter everything calculated rest intervals to the second everything perfect then they'll be done with the track and be like good job go to the weight room and not give the kids any indication of what to do when they get there, right? And then the strength coaches, we wonder why the cross-country kids are wandering in with dirty sneakers, wrecking the floor, and don't want to lift. And we're like, well, we're not communicating to coaches. There's a bunch of problems here. So my thing is, let's go into the weight room with a plan. Let's have a plan of what days we're going, depending on what time of the year we're in, when our big events are, when our smaller events are, and have a, an attack the weight room the same way we attack the track or the trail or the hills or the pool if you're that kind of athlete, right? So there were the couple things we came up with right away was that, and I've been, I've been around both, both sides of the spectrum a lot. I think most endurance athletes deal with two things. One, 
too much fatigue, right? If you're covering miles and miles every day as part of your training, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. That's, that's how you want to train. That's great. You're going to be in an almost constant state of fatigue, right? And secondly, too little time. If you're going 15, 20 mile runs, plus having a job, plus having a family, plus having a commuter responsibilities, how much time do you really have, right? So we kind of put the workouts together to deal with both of those things, right? We're talking two to three 40-minute sessions a week in the gym for the time side of it. And we're giving you a ton of, giving you a general template and then a bunch of different options of how to manage that fatigue, right? Because like, for example, I think the barbell back squat is one of the best exercises you could ever do. Big fan of the barbell back squat for 25 plus years. However, if you just ran 10 miles in pouring rain, mostly uphill, maybe that barbell back squat's gotta be a goblet squat, a med ball squat, maybe a lay press if the day call if you're really that beat up you know what i mean you have access to it so i think one thing is you know endurance athletes a lot of times will start lifting weights get too sore and decide they don't want to do it anymore because right? it's affecting their endurance training the next day or the day after that my argument is there's a way to do this and manipulate volume and intensity and frequency and exercise selection where you can cover a lot of miles in a week and stay reasonably, not going to power lift the meat, but you're going to stay reasonably strong to get through your training period. Because I always see on the cross country side of things is you see guys and girls start off in, you know, mid August, they come back, they came back in shape. They did the running over the summer. They feel pretty good. They look pretty good. They're joking around with you in the weight room. Things are going good. Right. As that season progresses, you get to the October, November time, they're losing more and more body weight. They're losing more and more muscle mass for a bunch of reasons, right? Their bodies are just getting worn down. They're emotionally fatigued. They can't wait to the end of it. And my thing is somebody who's got a bunch of great experiences running marathons, I think that, that for TV, for movies, for social media, that person just dragging their body across the finish line, it's a cool picture. It's a great post. You get a lot of likes, right? But in reality, shouldn't we focus on being upright, good breathing patterns, finishing strong, and then, you know, giving a couple high fives, partying for a day or two and thinking about your next event. And I see too many people looking at their big events as the light at the end of the tunnel instead of I, that's a hurdle I'm going to get over and then I want to go get to the next hurdle. And I think for a lot of people, resistance training is not the whole puzzle, but a piece of that puzzle, right? Because we would be foolish not to say nutrition, hydration, sleep, recovery, all of that's important. But I think being generalized stronger is only going to help you get ready for that next event and finish this one I hate to use a cliche again, but finish stronger. Yeah. Do you see, and you, you kind of mentioned the, the dragging yourself over the finish line kind of uh, image. Do you see, and I, I see this as, I, I'm kind of my own bias, but you know, the element of anything you do in excess is going to lead to problems, right? Like if I only power lift, right, that's going to lead to some orthopedic and probably some heart related problems, right? I'm going to be, have high blood pressure, high resting heart rate, very low HRV, et cetera. But the same thing with, only endurance-based athletes. All I do is run. All I do is swim. All I do is bike. And you see, you know, potentially they're at higher risk from an immune system standpoint. Is there any correlation or connection you're making within the book of connecting resistance training, adding or preserving lean muscle mass and the strength of the immune system when it really matters in like this quote unquote peaking phase? Okay. Uh, we didn't address immune system specifically, right? But the first part of that question we definitely did was retaining muscle mass. And it kind of came back to the idea of that. If you take an adult that's going through a training period, let's say they're training four months for a marathon, right? Or a high school or college athlete that's going a three or four month 
uh, cross country season or, or swim season or distance swimmer, you do see, if you don't handle it properly, you definitely see a decrease in muscle mass, right? And most runners agree they get lighter as the season goes on, but they're usually not savvy enough to realize some of that weight loss is muscle mass being lost and not just fat, right? Most people have very low body fat to begin with. How much more are you really going to lose before you start going to having problems for that? So our idea is we understand you're burning a ton of calories every time you go out and run swim bike these distances now you're gonna have to take a nutrition component you're gonna have to rest and drink plenty of water obviously but can we keep some of that muscle mass on by doing the right amount of resistance training right i think as much as i love the strength game i've been in my whole life i love lifting weights I feel like a lot of times the strength coach world is characterized probably unfairly by just stacking 45 on top of 45 and chalk everywhere and, and you know, squat until you can't anymore. And there's a place where if you're a powerlifter, Olympic lifter, bodybuilder, that's the way to train, right? We all know that to an extent. But if you're an you're a endurance athlete, it doesn't have to be stacking plates on a bar. It's just got to be move down the dumbbell rack one or two notches, pick up some heavier dumbbells, overload your system that way and get a little bit stronger, right? Med balls and kettlebells are great. Let's try to pick up some heavier ones today than we did yesterday. I think bodyweight stuff is great. I think too much as, as a strength world, we sell what we do as being completely the opposite of the endurance training world. And I think there's more of a, an overlap between the two than either side is really willing to admit, right? And it kind to use myself as the example all the time is that I was a decent powerlifter Olympic lifter in my teens and 20s. I took a bunch of years off from competing and then became a decent uh, marathoner in my 30s and early 40s, right? But I do think kind of my resiliency to injury, my ability to keep getting faster as I get older, and my ability to not kind of just be physically, mentally, emotionally drained at the end of every marathon that I run has some correlation to the fact that I had a great strength base when I was younger, right? And then continue to train in a smart way around my endurance training as I get older. So I guess that's a perfect segue into the question I was wondering before we started this conversation was, what is what is the approach here? Is it build a aerobic base of like, let's get as much capacity as possible so we can have as much density of either oxidative energy system or glycolytic or even a lactic phosphagen, or is it increase the, the force capacity or the velocity level from a power perspective? So when I do run, I'm more efficient. I can exert less, it's less per capita of whatever step I'm taking. My actual ceiling is now a lot higher so I can move with a lot more efficiency. Like, I know it's kind of like an impossible question, but right. using your example, look, okay, you got really strong early and now that's led to more efficiency later and more resiliency. Or is it the other way of like, do I develop a really good aerobic base and add in force and power later? Okay. I, number one, that's a great question. And number two, it's a chicken or egg type question. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit hard to answer as you alluded to, but I think it really like so many things in our profession depend on the person we're dealing with. Right. So I, I acknowledge the advantage I had coming to the endurance sports by spending a decade plus in a strength and power sports. Right. However, I think I'm a very unique person. And what I mean by that is most people that, that grow up in the, in the strength sport, power sport environment, very few that I'm aware of, and I don't know the statistics on this at all, transfer into the endurance thing as they get older, right? So I realize I'm a little bit of, a, of an anomaly in our field by going that way, right? I think if you're the typical high school, early 20s endurance athlete that did some high school cross country, some high school swimming, and now you want to segue into triathlons or, you know, adult competition type stuff. In that case, I think you're better off trying to develop the over 
overall capacity, work capacity and workload, and then try to get as strong as you can in that environment, because that's a couple of things. Number one, body type wise, that's probably what you're going to be more suited for, right? Number two, just what you like to do. You're probably more of a person that enjoys a long run as opposed to a long lift in the weight room. Right. And then number two, if you're already in the competitive mode, your runs or your swims or your bikes are the most important thing you're doing that you're competing on. And I don't know if you can really look at, you know, let's say 25, 26 year old recreational marathon in the face and say, you need to take a year off from running and just lift. So two years from now, you could be in a better spot. Right. In America, we just don't tend to think about the long game like that. Now, I do think to some extent we should do a better job of thinking long term athletic development. But that's just kind of as a, from my perspective as a country, not where we are yet. Right. Um, so I think you got to kind of give people what they like, go to where they are, meet them where they are, and then work what they're already doing. So one thing we did identify in the book, we kind of periodized the year into four main phases. Right. With the idea of we're not going to ask you to start doing, you know, front squats and push jerks three days before a marathon. That's that's silly. Right. But can we identify some time of the year, kind of your off season, we could add some volume in the weight room, add some intensity, try some new exercises that are going to make you sore if you're doing right. Right. But if you know, if it's January and your big event is a New York City Marathon in November, if you're sore in January and February, get through it. You know what I mean? But then we're going to also build in some regressions and some some modifications in intensity and volume where you're not going to be hopefully sore in October and November when you're doing 20 plus mile runs, getting ready for New York City Marathon that first or second week in November. So I think a lot of it is kind of taking the periodized approach the way we do with teams when we're training them and applying them to our adult fitness, kind of adult marathon and community that we really don't enough yet, right? Um, I think when the one thing that I think, that as much as I love the endurance community, the idea of if some is good, a lot is better is a crippling fallacy to some extent, right? That if you run 10 miles, that's good. If you run 20 miles, it's better. If you run 100 miles, it's the best, right? In reality, there's a, you got to run, you got to get your miles in, you got to get your miles on the bike, whatever it is. But to some extent, I think you got to kind of do trial and error and reading the research figure out what is a peak amount of miles for you to cover, right? And then figure out how you plug in your other training components around that that amount of mileage where you keep getting better. Because reality, you can't run a thousand miles a week. Eventually your body's going to wave the white flag, but what else can you do to get better, right? Mm -hmm. And in some days, it's not always going to be the squat rack. That, we're not doing Olympic lifts, but squats, lunges, RDLs, stuff that we know is great. Sometimes a year that might be some med ball throws, some kettlebell swings, and some body weight squats kind of thing because you're running 80 miles that week and then maybe later on in the year if you're running 20 miles a week and it's super light now we're putting some plates on the bar and doing some new things and and trying some things that get us you know bigger stronger structurally better posturally better that we wouldn't try a week before a big race yeah on this next question feel free to use your best judgment or your best instinct but who has the higher central governor the strength and power base or the aerobic capacity base like later in their career, like when, let's say 30 years old person started off just doing endurance, they ran, they ran cross country in high school, no lifting versus the guy who did weightlifting. And then about 25, they all just started committing to it. Okay. I think overall the, the lifting person is going to be in a better position. Okay. And can I make sure you explain why? And I want to see if you agree with Suze. I've never been asked that before. So it's a little bit of an interesting question. It's an interesting question. I think if you were to do an endurance, an endurance sport athlete that never overtrained, always ate right, always got enough sleep, stayed high, did everything right in the endurance training world versus somebody did everything right in the weightlifting world, it might be dead even. Right. But I think the problem that I see is, 
I see way more kids on the endurance side of things do it wrong, right? Malnourished, overtrained, chronically dehydrated, chronically exhausted than I do in the weightlifting world. Um, so I think because of that, because of the way I very rarely see the, the endurance world done right, I think the weightlifting person comes out in a better spot at 25 or 30 years old. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Oh yeah. And I have my perspective on this and this is why I'm a big advocate against like not doing high intensity interval sprints every day or CrossFit or anything extremely glycolytic on, on a very high frequency basis. Cause I think you just lower your red line. Like you, you are teaching yourself to go at a sub maximal level because you're always fatigued and you never have complete recovery. And I think that leads to a very low central governor and the person that knows, okay, what is absolute maximal effort in whether you go high intensity training with the old school, uh, Arthur Jones mentor, like going to true failure in a bodybuilding perspective and minimal effective dose there, or going from a sprint and, or sprint or, or track and field athlete or weightlifter that knows, okay, this is, this is my absolute one at one all out effort. You know, you teach yourself how to push to that threshold and realizing rest and recovery are prerequisite to do that versus the person that just kind of going arbitrarily getting tired or going to a point of fatigue every day. And they're just going, making it hard arbitrarily. And they're not really having any diagnostic to assess performance. And they over time gradually lower their output to accommodate that level of fatigue. And I think that is better served working extreme all out one out effort, very quantifiable objective things like getting more weight over your head and weightlifting or crossing a line and sprinting or throwing something further. And, and like as a, as a throwing athlete versus, you know, that person that's just kind of running four hundreds every day and just slowly, but surely getting to 90 seconds per rep just to, but they're getting tired, you know, and just, right. I think they're, they they're, teach they're, right. they're checking a box off their program for the day mm-hmm. without really pushing it. And I, and I think you can make it a bigger argument for society in general, how few people realize what they're capable of. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a very small percentage of people, even the athletic world. If you, if in most of the sports we deal with don't, don't train to failure in that, yeah, we don't have football, we don't have wrestling at Seton Hall. I don't do a lot of kids that have really done a true one rep max or anything before they meet me. Um, so I think the idea of that, of what your body's capable of versus what you think it's capable of is in some cases drastically different, right? Um, and I think we might be, I probably all be better off physically and maybe better off mentality wise if some people had a better idea of what true failure looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is, this is how high I could jump. This is how much weight I could put over my head. This is how fast I can do a hundred meter sprint or 40, whatever it is. And that's what true hundred percent effort feels like. Cause I do feel like forget the regular world. Nobody understands it out there, but even in, the, in a little bubble of pretty highly competitive athletics, you deal with people that have no idea what all out effort really means. Yeah. And I think you and I are both old enough to re- remember when Dr. Kramer was just absolutely on a rampage, destroying any like high intensity training methods and going once at the failure and sub maximal multiple sets are superior in every way. But the second order or now and looking at it in hindsight is, and it's for safety reasons in a lot of ways, but also too, like, I mean, I think overall, like training in a sub maximal setting for more volume is, is advantageous, but it does take away from that, that pressure that people really need from time to time of if you had to do a one all out effort, how would you strategize for that? Or how would you mentally prepare for that? And I don't think many people are really putting themselves in that situation because they've just conditioned themselves to lower their output, whether it was for safety reasons or from a physiological reason, as Dr. Kramer alluded to, or just because they're just not really planning what they're doing. And they're just kind of just 
going till they're tired and just checking that box. Well, and I, I think I think the planning side of that is probably the thing the overwhelming majority of people are missing with their fitness goals, right? Mm-hmm. The way you, if you look at if you took any decent strength coaches program in a country, even at the high school level, they're doing a hundred times more planning than the average guy growing a retro fitness. Right. Um, so I think to some extent that's, you know, you wouldn't, I don't think if you're smart, you wouldn't just like have no financial goal and no way how to reach them. Right. You wouldn't have no, no, most things we do, we have some kind of goals and some kind of structure to get there. And it's weird that like, the, the explosion of fitness in the last 20, 30 years has been amazing. It's been cool to be a part of it, but it's weird that like we still celebrate just the fact that somebody made it through a workout and not that it's building to something bigger, either an external goal, like in my case, running a marathon or an internal goal, like lowering your body fat to 20% or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And I think that's one thing where the fitness, I, I, the fitness unit does a lot of good things really well. But I think one thing it needs to do better is kind of steal from what we're doing in strength and conditioning world, the idea of goals and, and implementing programs that reach that build towards those goals, as opposed to just, come into the gym, punch a clock for an hour and then walk out and don't know if you accomplish anything or not. Right. Yeah. Um, I think one thing with the, the moving in the last 10 years towards the, the technology and the wearable technology and the, the catapult systems and all, all those. Right. I think the one thing they do that are, has been really good is it makes it really clear what you're doing when you train. Right. As opposed to like you said, I just got tired. Okay, great. You got tired. How many calories you burned? What, how, what kind of intention to move the bar with whatever it might be. Um, and now we're able to track some of those things, which I think is a good thing. And you got to think today's generation of kids that grew up with video games and phone apps, that's going to become just part of their, their life. And now their thing is like, you know, I, I did this amount. I, these are my numbers on Instagram. These are my numbers on Strava. And I realized they need to be trending in whatever direction, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that, that I think when the technology used properly is a good thing in that, that respect. Yeah, and, and now working in the, the private sector, the the line we keep coming back to is don't confuse activity with accomplishment. Yeah, and, it's a great line. You know, and like we, we tell all our folks of, you know, we want you to be able to get really good results with minimal investment. And that comes down to you got to give really good effort when you're here. You know, so if I hear and we screen everyone, we do a biomechanical screen and we look at it from we have constraints like restrictions, range of motion, asymmetries, pain, et cetera. And it kind of gives us some sort of, outlet of what could we do as hard as humanly possible without causing either injury or a decrement in performance. And we just choose based off of those, that constraint-based system, right? If we find that you have no pain asymmetries and restrictions, range of motion, like probably pretty, pretty served to use some higher threshold strategies with a barbell. But if you do probably can't, but the end result is when you do come go as hard as you possibly can with the tools that we select that were pretty like self-limiting or going to be open-ended based off of what we consider you as a risk factor. But the key is, is you got to push that threshold and you got to give yourself rest. And if you don't, and you feel this urge or sensation of like, I didn't really get a good workout. I got to come back tomorrow. You missed, you missed your opportunity. You blew it. You blew yeah. it. If I can get you the same results in three days, as opposed to your just fixed mindset of, I got to go six days or I'm not really getting anything out of this. Like I would say that's not a good use of your time as well as you're not maximizing the opportunity you have in front of you. And I think that same thing is applied with everything running. Like if you're going to go run, what is your goal? Like, right. Like my wife, loves to run like okay what is your goal i want to do three miles in under 24 minutes go do it you know like if you don't what what happened whether you over fatigued did you not know how to pace yourself did you come out the gate like just flying like okay well we missed the goal now we can learn from that and like i think having that objective is just so underrated and so many people just 
missed out and we have two kids and she works full time and like, all right, we got to make sure we get the most out of this three mile run you're going to do today. Like that's, that is what the message is not, not to not run, but it's to, okay, what is our plan? Okay. Three miles, eight minute pace, go like hit it. Okay. We didn't probably didn't get enough recovery. Probably didn't have enough carbohydrates before we ran. Didn't do what we need to do beforehand from a hydration standpoint or sleep standpoint. Maybe it wasn't a day to go for an eight minute mile for three miles. You know, maybe right. we should have done nine. Um, but you know, that I think that's like, um, I think that's the part two of like, there's dogma associated with everything that's very like singular and outlet, right? Like running 20, 26 miles or, or power li- doing squat and bench and deadlift for three reps, you know, like on one arbitrary meet, like we can get kind of fixed on just, all right, as long as I'm doing more and as long as I'm just accruing time with no clear objective, you know, I can, con- I can confuse myself and mislead myself that I'm getting closer to something or better at something. And I think that's the part that, you know, hopefully the, the running the marathon or doing a powerlifting meet is giving you impetus to have some sort of objective to define what is a good and bad day. And not many people understand that, that foundation, which the pendulum is now swung to just people with not very clear understanding of how to do this, where this is where strength conditioning coaches need to improve their presence online and make themselves insert themselves into objectively evaluating your program. Like it, it, it's bad. I can tell you it's bad because it doesn't have principles. I can tell you it's bad because you didn't reach something objective on any given day, or you didn't have some sort of contingency if you're not from a physio- physiological readiness perspective. Like it's not good. I can tell you that objectively because I know what's good and bad. It's not just my opinion. This is true. And I think that's the part where strength conditioning coaches now have the best opportunity with this trillion dollar industry that we're working with. Like runners is a big market. Right. And it's, yeah, it's a huge market. hundred percent, man. It's a huge market. And like I said, I say to my presentation about addressing the publishing industry, if you want to write a book, if anybody, I mean, I know you have a book coming out already. So congrats mm-hmm. on that. I'm super excited to read that when it comes out, but is it out yet or not? It's uh, it's printing. Okay. It's printing. So any day now, right? It's definitely <laughs> yeah. when it comes out. But um, I think what you got to, you got to show publishers there's a market for your book. Right. And if you look at runners in general, we're looking at people that are, financially independent, right? They tend to make more money than, than not. They tend to be very driven towards their goals, right? And they tend to invest time and money in their goals, right? So if you look at a triathlete, he or she might have a $10,000 bike. They might have a $500 thing they attach to the bike, whatever it might be, right? They're traveling around the world to do these events. Um, and those are people that will buy a product you have to sell, right? Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean you shouldn't address another community, but I'm saying if you want to sell a product and convince a publisher that they should publish your book, you got to kind of go out of your way to show them that this demographic buys books and buys products about training and invest in themselves and tries to get better, right? The other thing, just to go back to what you said before, I think the future of our profession, if it's not already the present in most places, the art and science combination of the technology tells you why you did something good or bad, right? Or the, the technology tells you you did something good or bad. And a strength coach looks at that data and says, this is why it went well or not. This is how we address it next time, right? Mm-hmm. So you just said, you couldn't hit the eight minute mile pace. Was it not enough recovery? Was it not enough carbohydrates? Was it too hot outside? Whatever it is. But I think that, I don't think we're ever going to be able to rely completely on numbers and data and technology. We need that human factor to interpret it and say, this is, what the results of this app showed us, this is how we're going to make it better for next time. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I think when you deal with people that don't try to make it better for next time, your clients, your athletes get frustrated because they stop getting better, right? Mm -hmm. I think at the very least, if you have a great day or a really bad day, figure out what happened and try to duplicate the great day and try to never let the real bad day happen again. And then again, that gray area in the middle, it was a pretty good day that I could change this, this, and this. I should always do this again. Um, but, you know, we've been hearing stories for you know, 50, 70 years about, you know, this athlete always ate this pregame meal for their entire career or whatever. This athlete always stayed in this hotel before a game or whatever it might be. Um, now, is there some of that superstition and just a funny thing to talk about? Absolutely. Is there maybe some effect of if you ate, for example, steak versus chicken before a great game, the way that acted in your body gave you energy that was prolonged and played better in that game? Maybe there is. So I think a lot of this, this, this tracking software and stuff we're using now is great and has a place, but there's got to be a human component to break down why something happened and how do we make or not make that happen again. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny with my wife and I'm not, she doesn't listen to any of my stuff, so it doesn't matter. She I'm the same boy, man. How many kids, how many kids you got real quick? Two. All right. I got one. She's just turned seven. If I want to put her to sleep in the car, you know what I do? Put on any of my podcasts. <laughs> She's out. She hears my name and just completely checks yeah, out. Of it. Yeah, there we go. That's that, that's a great pro tip. It's a great dad tip. Yeah. Um, but you know, my wife, for instance, you know, we have force plates, we have Nordboard, we have you know grip grip uh, assessment, we have all of it, right? And you know, the thing I notice with anyone who's competitive, it's they'll only do it if they know they're going to be good. And I think that opportunity to find out, like okay, we're fatigued. We're stressed. We just had our second kid three months ago and sleep is a, is a really big problem now, you know, right. Obviously, but Hey, when you go to work out today make sure you get your jumps on your force plate, I don't want to do it. Why? Cause I know I'm not gonna be good at it. This is the exact reason why we should do it. You know? Yeah. Um, and that element of, if they're not going to be better, they're not going to do it. And I think that's where, again, the strength coach comes in. We're boots on the ground of like, it's not always going to be up and to the right there's going to be moments where it's going to be bad before it gets good. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to emphasize that, that the part of the training process is to, to get into this negative curve on the adaptation you know, cycle. And, you know, before it becomes super compensated, it's going to be bad, right? The, the whole fatigue aspect of the fitness fatigue and seeing that and seeing the relative impact of that. Um, and I'm going through, uh, I don't know if you've gone through it, but Matt Jordan's course, um, you know, going through with really, really elite level athletes, it's probably better to track from a readiness perspective multiple times on these force plates, as opposed to, you know, it's not normal, non-athletic, regular people walking around like one time a week is pretty good. But with that being said is a lot of these elite level athletes, higher distribution of fast twitch muscle fiber, they're going to respond differently throughout the week and seeing that, but, Again, they're really competitive and they're not going to want to do it. And again, a strength coach has to insert themselves of like, I need to know good or bad. And that's, that's my responsibility to help you understand that. And like training was hard. Hey, not sleeping enough is hard. When people don't report their sleep, I know exactly how little they slept. You know, like, I don't want to put how yeah. much I slept last night because it's bad. Like, I know, I know exactly what it is. So the omission of not wanting to do it or the resistance to doing it tells me everything I need to know. And it, again, like strength coaches, like, we're, we're not like just data collectors, but we're going to be the ones that actually follow through with it and hold people to that standard of this information is going to be imperative to writing a better prescription from a strength condition perspective or a volume perspective, what we're doing from a running perspective. And I, I think one thing that's important is it's so much easier said than done in our perspective. Like you said, we're dealing with highly competitive people 
explaining and educating that exactly what you said, not everything is open to the right, right? You're going to have some bad days, you're going to have some dips, and some of that's by design. I think that's one good thing, uh, bring it back to the book, and we did by, by identifying an off-season part of the year where we're saying you're going to be sore. You're not going to have a great run the day after you learn how to do a back squat, right? You're, you're just not. It's not going to happen. But we're not going to teach you that exercise the week of a big race. We're going to teach you months and months out. Mm-hmm. And the idea like, we, oh, you're going to wake up and your quad hamstrings are going to be sore, right? Now, here's some recovery stuff to do, some mobility stuff you can do to get that soreness out of your system, right, and feel better. Then go for a lighter run that day and then come back to the gym on day three or day four after that first day. And we're going to squat again. Maybe we'll lunge again. Maybe we'll step on. Maybe we'll do some, some alternative hamstring work instead of Romanian deadlift. But the idea of, like, you have to be sore. Your body has to compensate before it super compensates, right, for lack of a better term. So how do we do it? How do we build that into the year? And even, you know, everybody wants to be a shining star all the time. In reality, you need bad days to be able to compare them to the good days at the very least, right? And I think it just comes with a maturity. And unfortunately, the college setting, most of the athletes I deal with don't develop that kind of like self-awareness until later on. Right. Because college is such, such a small environment. It's always you competing your teammates. It's always the coach looking all over your shoulder. If you have a bad day for some reason, you got to explain why you didn't get enough sleep, why you didn't drink enough water, why you missed breakfast, whatever it is. Whereas like I think when you deal with adult clients, you can be a little more open. You know what I mean? Like if I was working with you in some capacity, you said my, my three month old child didn't go to bed at all last night. I didn't sleep at all. I feel terrible. As an adult, I go, OK, let's get through this today. Right. Bring our intensity down a little bit. Come back tomorrow. Right. That's an adult conversation we can have. That unfortunately, the dynamics of college athletes and high school athletes doesn't always allow that conversation to take place. Yeah, you know, one one of the best uh, sports psychologists I think ever, Ken Revisa, he used to say, "Have a good shitty day." And you know, stemming from the idea that if you think every day is going to be perfect and sunshine and roses and you're going to be recovered and and feeling great, you know, you're full of it. You're not you're lying to yourself. You're setting yourself up for failure. You know, right. but there's going to be days you're going to be sore. There's going to be days you're going to be stressed. There's going to be days where you're not slept enough or you're just not great circumstances. Make the best day possible, right? Like, all right, all right hey, I go to the track, not feeling great. Got to do something. Really sore from the previous day. Baby doesn't want to sleep. All right, what can I be successful in today? You know, and maybe you put constraints or governors on there. You don't overdo it. But on the other end, it's, I'm here. Might as well make the most of it. And that could be something in terms of, like what we do from a biomechanical perspective of just trying to put constraints on it where you can go as hard as you possibly can go and not put yourself at adverse risk, but you got to balance that out with something in the other end. Um, but we, we did want to get into some case studies and I wanted to kind of go through some of this stuff um, before uh, we break here. But you know, one of the things I wanted to kind of get uh, from you was, okay, let's talk about potentially athletes that you're working with and how you're approaching it from screening perspective, from initial assessment perspective, and then going into from, okay, now that I figured this stuff out about this athlete. Now here's the direction I'm going to go with them based off of what their needs analysis are. Okay, great. Let's look at a high school or college cross country team. Okay. I, their, their schedules are very similar, right? They start up running for real in about August, have meet September, October, November, some conference championships, mid to late November, uh, let's say December is usually going to be exams, maybe some family time, and then back training, so let's say mid-January, just make it simple, right? 
I would say January, the rest of January, February, March, and April, and look at that as a quote-unquote off-season, right? So we would start early January, and I, I would kind of eyeball test some very simple things, right? Can they squat properly? Can they lunge properly? Can they do a hip hinge properly, an RDL kettlebell-type movement, right? And what does their general flexibility and mobility look like through a basic dynamic warm-up? Okay. Um, now, in certain situations, and working with so many individuals that has some pre-existing conditions, we might put some numbers on that and use some force plates and stuff. But let's just take it as I'm working with the whole team, and I'm going to use the eyeball test in case some coaches listening don't have access to that, right? Then I'm going to kind of make a note of what this team is struggling with or what the individual players are struggling with and start addressing that every day in my dynamic warm-up, right? So I can tell you off top, it's going to be we're going to do some kind of squat every day in our warm-up. We're going to do some kind of forward and or backwards lunge. We're going to do some kind of hip hinging, um, with some kind of shoulder girdle mobility type stuff, and we'll do some kind of light core work, core activation stuff before we get started every day, right? Then when we go in the weight room, we're going to start at the bare minimum, right? So we're going to take our six foundation exercises, our squat, our lunge, our hip hinge, upper body push, upper body pull, and hip bridge, and start start the very low end of those progressions and start at really square one, right? And you know, in this environment, you're dealing with people that have really never trained before the sweeping generalization, probably not very strong, probably not very mobile. So just body weight versions of those exercises might be enough on day one, right? Mm-hmm. Day two, that might go to some dumbbells or med balls or kettlebells. And maybe we get into month two or month three of that offseason. Now we got some barbells with some plates on them. We're moving some real resistance, right? And kind of progress that kind of around their running for three or four months is really build that strength base. Okay. And try to get good at the main foundation exercises. As we get into, let's say, May, June, we're going to look at that as they're building a base where they're really ramping up their mileage. So just by the nature of having not enough time in a 24 hour day, we might take it down to two lifts a week. Right. And really just focus on what we think is the most important thing for that person. Right. It might be it might be getting strong. It might be uh, fixing some imbalances. So making sure we're doing more hamstring work than quad work, whatever it might be. But kind of staying strong and stuff we think is the most important. Uh, as we get into August and September, which will probably be the most they're running every year, we're going to call that their peak mileage phase. And now we'll scale it back as much as we need to on an individual basis, right? Can we get in two to three good sessions a week? If we can, we're going to do it. If we got to go to two real sessions at one kind of foam roller recovery core session, we'll do that. And then as we start tapering for that conference meet in uh, late October or November, we'll kind of kind of leave it up to them a little bit to, to pick and choose a couple very important exercises, get them in a little bit of auxiliary work, some core work, and then kind of just get your body feeling good for these long runs and these races you're having at the end of your season. And then hopefully if they're smart, they rest, recover, do some active rest type activities during you know, late November or December when they're done and we start it back up again in January. Well, the idea is that, you know, you're doing your real quote-unquote work and getting stronger and building muscle mass and hypertrophy during those off-season months. And then you're trying to maintain and plug and play it around your running schedule in your real season, you know, your season months. We have meets every Saturday or Friday, whatever it might be. Okay. Uh, so, and again, I want to kind of keep this, hopefully we can hit the biggest audience possible after this, but I, so I don't want to get too technical, but and one of the things I think a lot about with cyclical sports is this idea of force and length. And, you know, the, the more, the more they do redundant activities, the more length and force kind of gets altered in a negative way. Uh, are you doing any kind of force length, like internal, like measurement on it? Like, damn, that person just really getting stiffer and stiffer and then not going to be able to produce as much force um, on, in your own, or do you have like a, like a diagnostic from a movement perspective? 
Okay, if the person is dealing, with, if you know the person is dealing with some kind of issue like that, right? My answer would be direct them to the sports medicine professional that can assess that and address it for them, right? As a strength coach, my attitude is kind of like if we could tell that just by looking at them, right, or they're complaining or what they say to us verbally, let's address that issue as much as we can. And as far as the force length ratio is, like you said, if we just keep getting stronger in the same repetitive activity, that that ratio is going to go bad fairly quickly, right? So we're always going to address that length issue in our dynamic warm-up, in our cool-down, in our flexibility and mobility work. And I think you want to hit it from a couple different directions. Right. You want to do some body weight resistance stuff where it's just you versus the ground and, and doing some stuff. Can we use some bands and some foam rollers and some stuff like that to make it a little better? Absolutely. We definitely can. But I think that's where you want to look at things that maybe this person has an issue with. So they need to spend a couple extra minutes doing that versus person B has another issue. So they just spend their time doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. I think most of the mobility work we're seeing done now is pretty much good for everybody unless they have some kind of kind of hyper relaxing and joint or some kind of issue. But I think to make the best use of your time, kind of pick your, you know, pick yourself, your client out with a couple exercises they need to really focus on until they get better at this one thing. And then maybe when that problem is corrected, move on to another problem. Okay. And then uh, one, uh, one other kind of like, I guess, technical question, are you looking, I guess there's a force velocity curve, right? We can look at how the faster something is, the slower it is and vice versa. Is there any kind of like thing on like a force work kind of relationship of like looking at someone's VO2 max or cardiac output um, early on and trying to create some sort of, okay, this person's got a 70 VO2 max, like they're fine in terms of the, the fitness component. I got to improve their force output. Like, is there any kind of diagnostic you're doing in that direction? I'll be totally honest. No. And because for the last couple of years, all of my research on writing has been based on kind of typical recreational athletes, right? Kind of just bringing the competitive side of things. Um, now, if any, in a higher level world, if I was working with super high end marathoners, triathletes, I think what you would find is most of their VO2 maxes are going to be pretty good if they're training already, right? So then you want to look at the force curve and look at how can they, they emit more force on the ground and propel themselves forward more. And I think that gets into a very weird, not weird, but individualized situation, right? That you look at, you know, 10, if you look at 10 world class runners, look at the running form everybody's good everybody's fast obviously but each one of those people can get better by addressing a different thing so i think at that point you got to really get out the cameras and the and the biomechanics software and see what each person needs when you get to that level right i think in a sweeping generalization particularly coaching on high school or college cross-country swim team stuff like that you kind of pick out the patterns you see right and you see overall the team has tight Achilles. So we'll do these stretches. Overall team has tight IT bands. So we'll do these stretches. And then if you have someone that's got a glaring weakness or glaring immobility, now the time to pull them to the side and be like, okay, here's your little, little subset of drills you can do to help you with, with these kind of things you're dealing with. Right. Um, yeah. But then it's kind of in a team setting, it's kind of a better way to do that. And then uh, one last thing in terms of like weekly tracking for all this, right. Uh, are you doing any, uh, are you recommending any wearables? Are you recommending any like internal metrics like uh, heart rate monitoring or, um, or even just kind of just general like grip strength or blood pressure? Are you, are you looking at any kind of week to week tracking to kind of help you guide you along the way? I, I, we're really not recommending anything specific, right? But I think if you want to find some things you want to measure week to week, and it could be as easy as on Friday, you match your pull-ups, or, mm-hmm. you know, match your push-ups, whatever it might be. Um, but I do think with the, the wearable stuff, there's definitely a place for it, right? 
But I think if you're a pretty competitive endurance athlete, you might be better off shifting that focus to a heart rate monitor or monitoring your performance on the runs, on the bikes, on the swims, than necessarily what's going on in the weight room, right? And that would be a better use of your time and, and effort and money in that. But I do think if, if you're that committed to your training, it would be good to track some of the stuff you said and see where it's going, right? With, with an eye towards, it's not always going to be getting better, but how do you how do you change things and make it get you know over if we look at a pattern and get consistently better? Yeah. Okay. Awesome, man. Um, well, shoot, like that was that was really cool. I uh, appreciate you taking the time. I do think there's one more question. That I think was really um, hopefully the the most important one. So we get your book and we read it. What is the one thing you want everybody to walk away from that, or multiple a couple things? But what is the one thing or a couple things that you want the people that read your book to come away from going, okay, I know exactly what was intended from this book. Okay. I think the biggest overall arching thing we want to get out of it is if you love endurance sports and you love competing with your peers in running, cycling, triathlon, swimming, whatever it might be, resistance training in some capacity might be the missing piece of the puzzle to take you to that next level, to extend your career another couple of years, to have you putting up a PR in your late 40s, early 50s that maybe you couldn't do in your mid-30s, right? I think me and Dr. R.J. Borges put together is a great puzzle piece that's going to fit in that puzzle for a lot of people, right? But if for some reason it's not, I recommend you guys go you know, – Take in the information of why we need the resistance train and find a way or find a puzzle piece that fits for you. But I think we gave enough choices and enough progressions and regressions, enough ways to play the game that what we have in the book will help just about everybody. But the biggest thing I want people to get out of it is if you love running, swimming, cycling, and want to continue to get better, implement some kind of resistance training into your weekly routine, and that will make you extend your career and hopefully keep getting better as you get older. Yeah, because we're not supposed to be able to reach our oxidative peak, barring injury or immune system dysfunction, till like our late 30s, early 40s, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the one I always say, man, people think they're washed up when they're done with college sports, but endurance sports is the one thing you keep getting better at for another couple of decades. Yeah. So if you like being competitive, it's, it's a good way to compete with yourself and other people in your area, your age group, whatever it might be. And you have a real chance at getting you know really better as you get older. Yeah. So, I mean, you're looking at, I mean, that was the whole premise and why it became, I mean, you could go back to history of like why like endurance athletes really started to become really popular with general populations. It was a lifetime activity, you know, and you could do this for the rest of your life. I mean, that's what Bowerman was pushing in the seventies, right? And like, you know, starting to jog for general health and fitness, but also too, you can keep improving until your forties, which is not very like common, right? Like most of the things you kind of get peaking at such an early age and you kind of just fight to hang on, which, it's kind of sad. Um, so as we all age, as we all get better, we can all improve our part of our cardiorespiratory fitness. And, and then too, like you look at some of the other things of lifespan, uh, which, you know, really is associated with, and there's a great book by, um, by an author named, uh, George West. It was it's called scale, but I mean, really three key attributes, why people live longer is less overall heartbeats, a uh, lower body temperature and less energy expenditure. Right. And like, you know, the more efficient you become from an oxidative perspective, the probably longer you're going to live. You're going to have a lower resting heart rate. You're going to be able to recover from high bouts faster. And you're going to be more efficient with the fuel that you have. You know, like you, you can go through lipolysis a little bit more efficiently. You're going to live longer by bottom line. Yeah, because, you know, we're, as we get along and move, we kind of know this already as people in the field, but there's not many 
negatives to exercising. There's probably even fewer exercise negatives associated with endurance activities. Um, it's, it's a good, it's a good way to live, man. I'm happy. I, you know what? I'm really happy. I got to be a part of it because a lot of strength coaches never make that jump over the other side of the fence. And uh, I'm really, I, I tried it randomly 10, 12 years ago and just really, really enjoyed it. So I wish it's certainly so lucky that I got to be a part of this, this you know, subset of the athletic community that so many strength and conditioning coaches don't get to experience. Yeah. I'll be honest. I'm five foot eight, 200 pounds. And I'm really envious of people that just like, screw it. I'm going to go for a five mile run and not yeah. like just completely to be destroyed. Um, I did a moxie analysis on myself, which is basically looking at the oxygen saturation in a, in a local muscular area. You know, you just see, and I'm, I work out pretty, pretty consistently. And yeah, I, I like sure. to do like zone two stuff pretty, but it's very task dependent, right? Like it's bike rower, um, mm-hmm. very stationary things at a very moderate intensity. But when you're asked to like do like running, for instance, at a body weight of 200 pounds at five foot eight, it's not really good body mass to efficiency right. ratio. I got to move a lot. Yeah, of, I got to locomote a lot of, a lot of mass. Um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat envious of that, to be honest. Uh, you know, and I, I look at that of like, all right, like I got two kids in my forties and they're young, like you know, for me to be able to be a functioning homo sapien when I'm in my fifties, when they're starting to reach these like ages that they're going to want to do stuff, you know, I better start to improve that body mass and aerobic at capacity. Cause just, you know, I'm going to be a very stationary dad unless I can uh, improve upon some areas that I'm neglecting over the last 20 years. That's a good, that's a good way to look at that, man. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's funny. Well, I'm thinking like, damn, I'm going to be 60 when they're going to college. Like, what kind of guy am I going to be? You know, like, yeah. that. you know, like who, who, how incapable am I going to be from doing things? Like, uh, I'm going to have to take the elevator and like, I'll meet you guys up there or yeah, it's fine. Let's just go there for this hike or whatever it is that we need to do. So man, Angela, I, I'm going to say, I just appreciate the hell out of your time. Um, I'm fired up. We're, we're, we'll get as much out there as we possibly can. Um, highly recommend getting, uh, getting the book. And then do you have anything else that you want to um, promote your social, anything else you want to get out there? No, nah, man. Thank you very much. I love the podcast. Love what you're doing out there. Uh, if you have any questions for me, my email is angelo.gingerelli at gmail.com. You can put that in the show notes if you want. And to follow the book on Instagram, it's fit at finish underscore strong underscore book. Uh, pump stuff up on there, either appearances, podcasts like this, and just general running information a couple times a week. So at finish underscore strong underscore book. And I hope to hear from some of your listeners soon, man. Thank you so much. Awesome, man. Thank you again for being on.